right? Hey, if you're new to us this morning, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. And uh, for those of you who are not new to us, we're glad you're here as well. Welcome once again to our worship gathering. It is good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. Two Sundays ago, we completed the first cycle of speeches in the book of Job at chapter 14, where Job lamented the devastating effects of sin, where he languished in the face of death, where he longed for the ultimate defeat of sin and death, which we discovered is resurrection, and where he lost hope. After he had this burst of hope, he lost the hope once again as he considered the, that he thought he was basically facing God's judgment, which he wasn't. That's what we discovered at the end of that first cycle of speeches. That's what we studied in chapter 14. Uh, I took a week off last week, and we had Gordon Rumble out here to preach, and I thought he did a pretty good job, and I really enjoyed his message. This morning, we will begin to study the second cycle of speeches in chapters 15 through 21. Second cycles in 15 through 21. Now, they continue in the same format with the three friends speaking and then Job responding to each one in turn. And the order is exactly the same as the first cycle. It goes from oldest to youngest, or Eliphaz speaks first, and then Bildad second, and then Zophar the gopher, he speaks third. The second cycle begins with a critical analysis of what Job has said thus far. Eliphaz, who is that first speaker that we're going to be looking at today, he appears to be mainly concerned with what Job said in chapter 12, where he described certain things that contradict their theology, really their religion. Remember, they had this belief in rewards and retribution. Their entire theology was hinged on that. God rewards those who do good. God punishes those who do bad. That was their theology. That was their religion. That was it. And what Job basically said in chapter 4 challenged those beliefs. For example, if God always, according to Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, if God always rewards those who do good and always punishes those who do bad, how could a blameless man be put through hell on earth and become a laughingstock to his friends? This was a major point that Job made in chapter 12, verses 4 through 5. Right? If God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do bad, how could Job, who does good, who is blameless, how could he suffer the way that he did? How could he become a laughingstock to his friends? That was a point Job made. Another point he made was how could the tense, this is his wording, his poetic wording, how could the tense or lives of robbers be at peace? And how could the, the lives of idolaters, those who worship false gods, how could they be secure? This is a point that he made in chapter 12, verse 6, right? If God is, he always rewards good and always punishes evil, how does evil flourish on earth? And how do evil men and women, robbers and idolaters, how are they secure? How is it that their lives have no trouble? That's a point that he makes. Again, scenarios like these cannot happen under the religion, under the theology of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But according to Job, they were happening. These things were happening all the time. He, he witnessed them. He saw them. Job was the blameless man suffering hell on earth, was he not? He was an innocent man, blameless man, who was suffering a literal hell on earth. He lost everything. Now, Job has been wrestling with the possibility of a third theological category, undeserved suffering, and we've talked about this quite a bit. And it was as if he was trying to convey this to his friends. You know, their religion is two-dimensional, rewards and retribution. And what he's been saying is there's another dimension to it, fellas, that, that it is entirely possible that the righteous can suffer or that there is actual undeserved suffering. People will suffer when they're not actually doing anything wrong. He's been trying to convey this to them through his examples and through his own life example. And yet his defensive arguments, right, defending his own integrity and blamelessness his defensive arguments were incredibly offensive to his friends because they thought he was lying and hiding sin. 
And most of all, they thought that he was undermining and even attacking their religion, right? That's what they believed. When he said, hey, I am suffering in an undeserved manner. I didn't do anything to warrant this suffering. They interpreted that as him lying, and that's an attack on our religion. Because only those who do bad things suffer. And since, Job, you're suffering, it's obvious that you have done bad things, that you have sinned against the Lord. And so whenever Job said, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything, or look at these other things that are happening where there appears to be injustices in these things, they just interpreted all of what he was saying as an attack, an undermining of their religion. According to their religion, according to their theology, undeserved suffering is a disgraceful idea because God always, without a doubt, according to them, always rewards those who do good, and He always punishes those who commit evil. And I'll tell you what, nothing fires religious people up like undermining their religion. Nothing gets religious people more, more angered and, and, and volatile than questioning and undermining and even attacking their religion. On January 7th in 2015, two Muslim brothers forced their way into the offices of the French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo in Paris. Many of you remember this story. And they were armed with rifles and other weapons. And they shot and killed 12 people and injured 11 others. Why? Because Charlie Hebdo, that satirical newspaper, undermined Islam by publishing a silly cartoon depicting its alleged founder, Muhammad. Okay, so these guys were so upset at this newspaper for making fun and undermining Islam that they went in and savagely killed people. Like I said, nothing fires religious people up like going after their religion and questioning their religion and undermining their theology. In Job's Undermining of his friends' religion generated similar zeal and determination in the friends, especially in Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz is not a bloodthirsty, murderous kind of person, but he was still highly aggravated and angered with what Job has said, because guess what you don't do? You don't attack somebody's religion. You don't question somebody's religion. You don't undermine somebody's religion. Does that sound familiar? That's going on today. We see it with the Charlie Hebbo, and I was on Facebook long enough to get annihilated for questioning certain theologies in these things. Now, believing he was armed with superior firepower, higher intellect and, and greater wisdom and well-established traditions, Eliphaz then goes on the attack and attempts to shoot holes in everything that Job has said so far. He's just... He's, it, he's like doing a magnum, pop, 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 on everything that Job has said. I'd like for you to please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 15. Job chapter 15. We are going to focus on verses 1 through 16 this morning, where Eliphaz says six things about Job's words. Six things about Job's words. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask for your help. Lord, open our, our ears to your word, our minds to your word, our hearts to your word. Make our hearts fertile ground where your word can be sowed, where it can germinate, where it can grow and develop and transform our lives. Father, we yield ourselves to you and we we commit ourselves to you now. We humble ourselves before you, knowing that, that only you can perform this work in our hearts. If you do not send the Spirit to come within us and to do this for us, uh, this message is just going to be a message. It's just going to be a pep talk. It's just going to be a speech, uh, something like that. And Lord, that's not what we want. We know that your word is powerful. It's like a double-edged sword and it cuts right through our consciences and everything and, and it does its awesome work. And so, Lord, we pray for, for it to do its awesome work in our hearts this morning. We pray that, that the Spirit would prevail upon us and in us. Make us willing servants, humble servants, and may we not just hear the word this morning, but may we believe it and do it because we are to be doers of the word, James says in the New Testament. 
Father, we, we give you all praise and glory and all our entire attention now. Teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can begin with the first point. This is what, again, Eliphaz is attacking what Job has said. And the first thing that he says, basically through his poetry, is that Job's words are empty. They're empty. We see this in verses 1 through 3. I'll read it. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, and listen to what he says to Job after Job has spoken. He says, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? Stop there. Eliphaz literally thinks, literally believes that, that Job has just been spouting a lot of hot air. Everything that he said is just like gas. He's just said nothing good, nothing worthwhile, just a bunch of hot air. His so-called knowledge is just a wind blowing around and literally achieving nothing. The east wind that he says here, he mentions, is, is the hot Scirocco winds that blew in off the desert. It's a wind that is both unpleasant and unfruitful. It doesn't do any good at all. If you've ever lived down in Southern California, maybe you've experienced the Santa Ana winds. They don't do anything but blow stuff all over, and they're really hot. And that's a Scirocco type of wind. And, and Eliphaz says, that's your talk, bro. All you're saying is just hot gas, hot wind, hot air, and it's not helping or doing anything for anyone. It's no good. It's of no value. As far as their religion is concerned, the idea of undeserved suffering has no correspondence to reality. It is therefore insubstantial talk and of no use in giving wisdom for actual life. This is what Eliphaz is saying through his poetry. He's saying this is not the kind of talk for a wise man. And in terms of being wise, wise people don't talk the way you're talking, Job. They don't say the things that you're saying. They don't undermine our religion. They don't attack our theology. They don't defend themselves when they know, in fact, that they're in sin. And that's why their life has fallen apart. Eliphaz is saying, hey, wise people don't do that, man. Wise people don't do that. And you know what? Bildad and Zophar were in agreement with Eliphaz. They had stated the same point back in chapter 8, verse 2, and back in chapter 11, verse 2. All three friends believed without a doubt that Job's words were just empty like hot air, not good for anything. Not even good like helium, because that can make a balloon go up. This was just hot, stinky breath. That's what they think. His words are empty. There's no substance to them. Nothing to them at all. Maybe they think Job is speaking like some kind of politician. We know they have a lot of hot air, don't they? So that's the first point. His words are empty. Secondly, Job's words are dangerous. Verse 4, Job's words are dangerous. Listen to what Eliphaz says to him next. Not only is your, is your, are your words just empty and meaningless, but you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. Stop there. The accusation here is that what Job has been saying is undermining proper religion and piety. The word meditation means a proper reverence for and devotion to God. Uh, the phrase, the fear of God, is a normal definition of healthy religion, especially used by those who consider themselves wise. What Eliphaz is concerned with, he's concerned that, that if Job's ideas, the things that he's been promoting and talking about, like undeserved suffering and, and, and questioning their religion, these things, if, if his ideas were to catch on, all the, the usual incentives to be virtuous and pious would be removed. After all, if blessing does not follow virtue, why bother to be virtuous? And if God's curse does not follow vice, why restrain yourself? Why not eat, drink, and just be merry and do whatever you want? If we live in a world in which 
Blessing and suffering are not predictable and explicable. What point is there in any morality or religion? This is Eliphaz's point. The fourth century humanist slash theologian, and I barely call him a theologian, but Pelagius, he made a a similar argument against free grace. He called Augustine's teachings on the subject dangerous because he believed that, that Christians would not pursue holy lives if they came to believe they were saved by grace alone. What Pelagius did not understand is that the grace that saves also incentivizes and empowers holy living. See, there was a disconnect in his understanding of what grace is. Those who are saved by grace will live in grace and obey because of grace. And he didn't get that. But he raised a similar attack here. Really what Eliphaz is combating is the same thing that Pelagius was attempting to combat, even though both men were wrong, and that's antinomianism. That's the idea that God's laws don't apply and we don't have to obey His laws. And because of grace, we can just do whatever we want. Eliphaz says, Job, that's pretty much what you're promoting in a way. If God just doesn't punish wicked people and, he, you know, and if He doesn't reward righteous people, then, I mean, what do we have to deal with here? What kind of world would this be? And, and if, if you believe these things, then why not just do whatever you want? That's his concern. That was Pelagius' concern. It's a good concern, but it also comes from a wrong understanding of how God saves. So, his words are not only windy and empty, they are dangerous. Job, we can't let what you're saying catch on because people, it'll be like Christians gone wild. Well, true Christians don't go wild, right? They just don't. They, they're tempted and they, and they struggle, but they don't just, oh, because of grace, I can do what I want. Wrong way to look at it. Number three, his words are crafty. They're tricky. They're deceptive. Verses 5 and 6, Eliphaz says, For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Having accused Job of speaking words with no substantial content and with dangerous effects, Eliphaz goes on to accuse Job of bad motives. He claims to be able to deduce why Job is saying what he does. It's an old-fashioned and well-tried strategy to undermine what someone says by psychoanalyzing them and accusing them of evil motives. It was as if Eliphaz had said, Job, you are only saying these things because you know you are guilty and you want to cover up your sin. Your absurd claims of undeserved suffering are no more than a mask for a guilty conscience. This is what he's saying here. You're, tri you're trying to trick us, and you've definitely tricked yourself here. But how does Eliphaz know this? How does he know this about Job? And, and, and how does he think or believe that this, that, you know, or how does he claim, really, and this is the trick, right? How does he claim to have such access to Job's heart? How can he see through everything that Job is saying and just, and just see his heart and say, look, I, I can just tell you're saying all of this from a corrupted heart. How does he have this ability? How does he think that Job's heart is corrupt? How does he think that his words and motives are wrong? He, he tells us in verse 6, as if, it's as if he had said, it is by the words of your own mouth that I know you are guilty. Your lips testify against you. You are self-condemned. What he's thinking is, is that proverb that says it's from the heart that a man speaks. Now, that wasn't written at this time, but that's the way that he's psychoanalyzing. You're saying things against our religion. You're saying things that are out of sorts. You're saying things that can't be according to our tradition. And what you say is coming from a, 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 a twisted heart, a crafty heart, a deceived heart. That's what he's saying to Job. His words are crafty, they're tricky, and this is why he raised the alarm in the last point. We can't let this stuff catch on, Job. We're going to have to silence you somehow because we don't want people listening to you. Number four, Job's words are arrogant. They're prideful. They're braggadarious. Uh, verses 7 through 10, listen to what Eliphaz says to him. Are you the first man who was born? Like, did you predate Adam? That's what he's saying. 
Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Eliphaz accuses Job of just brazen arrogance. Uh, The hills are a way of speaking of the oldest part of creation. It was as if he had said to Job, you seem to think you were... Uh, You're kind of a a primeval man born of God before the creation of the world. Like maybe you existed with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in all eternity past with Job. That's what he's saying. The word counsel signifies the place of intimate, confidential conversation. It is where the false prophets of Jeremiah 23 claim to have been. It was as if he was saying to Job, you are speaking as if you had security clearance for God's cabinet chamber. You are claiming among human beings a monopoly on wisdom. This is what he's saying to Job. And in verses 9 and 10, Eliphaz literally pulls rank on Job. He basically says, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that isn't already clear to us? Look at us. Do we not have gray hair? Are we not aged? Have we not been around for a while and had time to figure this stuff out? Some of us, Job, are actually older than your own daddy, is what he says to him. And this is where somebody pulls rank based on the color of their hair. But we know for a fact just because a person's older and has gray hair doesn't necessarily constitute wisdom. If that were the case, there wouldn't be so many old people in casinos squandering their money. Seriously, just because you have gray hair doesn't mean you're wise. And you know what? In the scripture, gray hair was a symbol of wisdom. And that's why they're saying, look, he's got gray hair. I got gray hair. Zophar the gopher's 12. We know he doesn't, he doesn't even have hair under his arms yet. But still, we have gray hair. We know these things. We know, we've studied these things. We've analyzed, we've analyzed traditions, and, and we know the way the world works. We understand that. Rewards and retribution are the way that it goes. And everyone believes this, Job. We don't understand why you don't. This is what Eliphaz is saying. He also implies that, and by the way, Zophar was older than that, but not that much older. So some of you might be thinking, what, was he really like 14 or 12 or whatever? No, he was probably in his early 20s. Eliphaz also implies that the long-established tradition of morally serious people cannot be lightly challenged. You know, it's the way that it's always been, Job, and you can't just challenge that however you want. You can't challenge our traditions. You can't challenge what we've always believed. Have you ever met somebody like that? You know? You just can't challenge. Dude, I've been around for a long time, and a lot of people think the way I do, and you just can't challenge me. That's what he's saying. The word group behind the word no appears more than 70 times in Job. It is a vital question, how do we know what we claim to know? For Eliphaz and his friends, tradition is the best we can do. And that's what he's leaning on here. We've been around, we've got gray hair, everyone believes in rewards and retribution, we do too, we've been around longer than you. Don't challenge us, don't challenge our beliefs, don't challenge our religion. That is in effect what Eliphaz is saying. Number five, Job's words are hurtful. They're hurtful. Um, Verses 11 through 13, this is where Eliphaz displays that he was kind of a snowflake in a bit of a way here. He says, are the comforts of God too small for you? Or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth. Eliphaz says, in effect, I feel hurt by your reaction. This is what he's saying. You are hurting me through your words, Job. You need to stop here and think about what you've been saying. You've been attacking our religion, undermining our theology, and you know what? You have hurt me through your words. Your words are hurtful. They've hurt these two guys over here as well. Now, keep in mind, Eliphaz and his 
and, and the other friends had come to bring comfort to Job, right? Chapter 2, verse 11. In his first speech, Eliphaz has been sympathetic and considerate. He has given Job, what does he say here? The comforts of God by means of the word that deals gently with you. The word that deals gently with you here, it refers to the main tenet of their religion. What? God rewards those who do good and He punishes those who do evil. So when Job claimed to be innocent and suffering for no apparent reason, he's just suffering for general purpose or God is just tormenting him for no reason, whenever he defended himself in this, the word of comfort that Eliphaz and the others were giving him was, you're wrong, you're hiding sin, and what you've been saying is not the way that it works. That's the word of comfort. How was their word comforting ever? We've studied 14 chapters so far, and we've seen their responses to Job. If they did not, they had the intent of comforting him through their rigorous religion and defense of it, but boy, they didn't bring him any comfort. None at all. The word here that's supposed to comfort... They're just reiterating to Job over and over and over their religion and the tenets of their religion, rewards and retribution. We have dealt with you. They, they even have the audacity to say that these, this religion that we have, this theology that we have, it is the comfort of God for you in the midst of your suffering. And I guess you don't even value that, do you? That's what they're saying. Crazy. Eliphaz is... is in a sense, telling Job to pack his bags because they're about to go on a guilt trip. My paraphrase, this is really what Eliphaz is, is, is getting at here through his poetry. We have gently presented the word to you, their religion. We presented it to you, Job, but you keep declaring your innocence. You keep rejecting our counsel. You keep undermining our religion by claiming that your suffering is undeserved. That is an impossibility. Why does your heart continue to carry you away from our counsel and from our love and from our comforts and from our friendship, from our words? Why do your eyes flash? In other words, why do you sarcastically blink your eyes, right? You know when somebody says something ridiculous, you're like, that's what Job has been doing for 14 chapters. My wife has a little meme or a little gift she sends out when somebody says something ridiculous. There's a boy on there going, right? That's what they're claiming that Job has been doing. They're saying, why do you blink your eyes sarcastically at us? Why do you harden your spirit? Why do you harden your heart against God? Why do you blaspheme, Job? Because when you attack our religion... You're attacking God because He's the founder and giver of our religion. And ultimately what they're saying is everything that you're doing, Job, it is hurting us. We came to help you, but you are hurting us. And we know after we've studied 14 chapters, who, was, who were the ones that were actually doing the hurting? The friends were just thrashing this poor guy, thrashing the battered patriarch. Over and over and over. So Job's words are hurtful. Number six, Job's words are unrealistic. They're unrealistic. We see this in 14 through 16. This is what Eliphaz says next as he continues to attack Job's defenses. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in His holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in His sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. We end there. Eliphaz returns to a theme he presented in his first speech, total depravity. We saw that in chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Total depravity means that man is thoroughly sinful, wholly impure. It means that he cannot clean himself up. He cannot make himself righteous before God, right? Galatians 2.16. It means that the good deeds he does outside of faith, the things that he tries to do to earn his way with God without believing in Christ, those things, they're nothing but filthy rags before God, Isaiah 64.4. Total depravity means that, that man is inherently displeasing to God, right? Natural man outside of Christ. 
He is displeasing to God. He is actually an enemy of God. He is opposed to God. What did we read in Psalm 14 earlier? No one does good. Everyone is against God. We pull this from verse 3 of Psalm 14. That's total depravity, and that's what he's talking about. How can a man be pure? He can't. He's totally depraved. How can one who is born of a woman be righteous? He can't. He's totally depraved. He cannot do any of these things on his own. That's what Eliphaz is saying. Uh, the rhetorical question Eliphaz asks is, if God puts no trust in His holy ones, he's speaking of angels who are superior to us, and even the heavens themselves are not pure in His sight, because, right, creation has fallen, how much less would He trust those who are born of a woman, who are abominable, who chug injustice like water? How much less would He trust those who are totally depraved? That is His rhetorical question to Job. Job already understands these truths. The point Eliphaz seems to make is that Job has proven his depravity, his impurity, by rejecting Eliphaz's counsel, by rejecting the word that deals gently, and by insisting that his suffering was undeserved. In other words, everything that you've said just proves that you're depraved and that you're lost and that you're still in sin and that there's no way that anything that you say could be pleasing to God or could be truthful. This is what Eliphaz is saying. Job's words were not only sinful according to Eliphaz, but they were unrealistic because they were what? Against the religion of the three friends and more importantly according to Eliphaz, they were against God because God is the founder of our religion. We need to summarize at this point. Eliphaz believed without a doubt and stated through his poetry, because that's what this is, he believed and stated through poetry that Job's words were what? Empty, dangerous, crafty, arrogant, hurtful, and unrealistic. This is what he tells him. Now, we have to ask, was this an accurate analysis of what Job has said thus far? Is there any value to what, to what Eliphaz has said? Is, 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 is it true what he has said about Job? No. No, in fact, Eliphaz was way off, way off in his assessment, way off in his analysis. What Job has been saying so far and what he says in, in the book itself, but what he has said thus far was true. Chapter 42, verse 7, where God literally says, what He has spoken about me is right. What you have spoken, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar the Gopher, wrong! You're wrong! So, so His assessment is way off, way off. And why is that? Why is He wrong about Job's words? Because He has lenses and earmuffs, and, and everything that He sees through these lenses, it, it has to authenticate and speak to his religion. And everything he hears, he twists. He twists it up. He twists what he hears to affirm his religion. He is so deadlocked in his religion, he can't even hear truth. He only believes in his religion. That's all he wants to hear. And, and, and Job has been pleading with him, in a sense, to listen, because there is another way here. And he just he doesn't want to hear it. The friends don't want to hear it. And who was actually displaying depravity here? Look, depravity can be defined by people who have closed ears and closed hearts and closed minds to the truth, right? They've hardened themselves. They're in their depravity. Who is not open to truth in this scenario? The three friends, not Job. No, their minds were shut. Their hearts were closed to the very truths that God was revealing to Job and through Job. Job has been in an ancient way, long before Scripture was written, long before Christ came, he has been preaching in a way the gospel. And guess what? They're not open to it. That's what religion does, doesn't it? 
It seals us up so we cannot be responsive to the gospel, which is the only message that can save. That's what's playing out here. Closing, I'd like to make a a couple observations as we wrap up. First, and I think primarily, the undeserved suffering of Job obviously foreshadowed the undeserved suffering of the one who literally knew no sin, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 Peter 2.2. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 29. Job had committed no sin or done anything to warrant suffering. Right? He didn't, he, I'm not saying he was sinless, but I'm just telling you he wasn't in some kind of hidden sin that led to it like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar kept saying. So his suffering was, in a sense, undeserved, or we might even call it righteous suffering. Did Jesus sin and deserve to suffer? Of course not. So the undeserved suffering of Job foreshadows the undeserved suffering of the one who would come and suffer for our sin, not for his sin, but for ours. There is an awesome parallel right there in this text. Jesus suffered, he bled, and he died on a cross to secure for his people, for us, the undeserved forgiveness we need to be reconciled to God. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, Colossians 1, 20, obviously. Jesus' suffering, because we've been studying Job's suffering, and it was pretty insane, but Jesus' suffering was tremendous, far beyond that of Job or anyone else in history or anyone else who will ever live. His, his suffering is, it is the pinnacle of suffering, higher than anyone else. Job suffered greatly, but not as greatly as Jesus did. Why? He bore our sins on His own body. He's perfect, and He bears our sin on His own body, 1 Peter 2, 24. And for that, He was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded and forsaken, right? Isaiah 53, 5, Matthew 27, 46, right? And if Jesus had not suffered and died on that cross, guess what? There would be no forgiveness of sin, no reconciliation with God, no salvation from divine justice and wrath. We therefore rejoice in His suffering. And and we're thankful to the book of Job for reminding us and for foreshadowing the one who came to suffer in an undeserved manner to pay for our sins, right? So we rejoice in the suffering of Jesus Christ. We do, because in that suffering, there is our forgiveness, there is our salvation. That's my first observation, the wonderful parallel between Job's undeserved suffering and the undeserved suffering of Christ, which brought us undeserved forgiveness. Amen? It's wonderful, the parallel. Second, Eliphaz's accusations against Job foreshadow accusations that would be leveled against the gospel. Let me me say that again. Eliphaz's accusations against Job, right? How he attacked the words of Job, the things that he said about Job's words and Job's teachings. Those accusations against Job foreshadow accusations that would be leveled against the gospel much later when Christ came and then through the epistles and how we see the gospel articulated in the New Testament. Eliphaz says that to claim undeserved suffering is empty and and dangerous and, and crafty, arrogant, hurtful, and unrealistic. The same accusations are leveled against the gospel today and have been for almost a couple thousand years or for a couple thousand years. The gospel is said to be what? Empty, having no correspondence with moral realities. It is said to be dangerous, undermining the necessary incentives to behave well 
What's the point after all if free grace forgives all my sin? This was the objection made against the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, and further down the road by Pelagius and Arminius and countless others throughout church history. This is one reason why the, the gospel is continually leaking away from churches today. The religious mindset hates it. They hate the grace of God. The gospel is said to be crafty, something we only, be, we only believe because we want people to think better of us, a deceptive means of getting people to think we're okay when we're actually not okay. Those with the gospel are often accused of, of being arrogant, right? I certainly have been accused of this. You seem to think you're better than everyone else. How else would you be so sure that you're going to heaven? You claim it's because of the gospel, not because of what you do, but because of what you believe. How arrogant. This is what people say about the gospel and about us today. You just think you're better than everyone else. You're judging everyone else. The gospel is said to be an emotional crutch for those who cannot cope with the moral realities of life. Let me tell you what it is. It is salvation from the moralities of life. I can't live a moral life the way that I should that's pleasing to God. We need the gospel because we can't pull it off. But they say, look, it's escapism. You're just trying to, it's a crutch. You're, you just can't cope with being a good person. No, I can't be a good person no matter how hard I try. But they say this, you only believe in the gospel because you are not prepared, because you are trying to escape your responsibility to live as a good moral person. And we always say that is an impossibility for anyone except Jesus. Ah, you're just being arrogant. Some people really think they can pull this life off and do it well. That's pride, and pride always goes before the fall the gospel is said to be hurtful, right? It is hurtful because it denies works righteousness. What do you mean? The gospel says I can't earn my way to heaven? That's the way the whole world thinks, just like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. What are you saying? That's so hurtful for you to say that, that at the end of my life, my good deeds won't outweigh my bad, and there's no way I can make my way and earn my own righteousness. What are you talking about? That's why I'm a religious person. What do you mean the gospel says, I can't earn my way? The gospel says it plainly, and that is hurtful to religious people who are determined to earn their way. The gospel is hurtful because it denies all other religious paths to heaven. It damns Muslims. It damns Hindus. It damns Mormons. It damns Jehovah Witnesses. It damns all religion and says it's entirely a work of Christ. And religious people, nothing sets them off than when you say that your religion is what Eliphaz said about Job's words, empty. And of course, we need to be very mindful and careful in how we present these truths. We don't want to do it as, I don't know, near violently as I am right now. We want to be gentle. But the gospel is hurtful because it lays siege to all religion. It says, it says Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through Him. That's what it says. So it cancels out all religion, and in that it is offensive. It is hurtful, is it not? And above all, the gospel is said to be unrealistic. Come on, really, how can a sinful human being really hope to be in the right before a holy God? This is an argument they make. It's so unrealistic that somebody came and was born of a virgin and came and lived a perfect life to die for your sin and be buried and rise from the grave. People don't rise from the How utterly unrealistic and how stupid that you would believe in such a fairy tale, you know you're a sinner damned. God is not going to be pleased with you. It's unrealistic. This is what they say. They say these things about the gospel, not because these folks are actually superior to us or to anyone else, not because they have found a better way, 
but because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to those who disobey the word. 1 Corinthians 1.18, 1 Peter 2.18. Why do they reject it? They reject it because it's stupid to them. It's stupid. And yet to us who are being saved, the gospel is not empty. It's not dangerous. It's not crafty. It's not arrogant. It's not hurtful. It's not unrealistic. It is not foolish. It is the power of God, right? It is the power of God. And we rejoice, don't we? We rejoice even when they torment and persecute us for believing it and for following Jesus. What do we do? We rejoice in the gospel because we recognize it is the power of God. It's not foolishness to us. It was before I was saved, but it's not now. It is the only message and word that has any power to make any actual change in this nation. It is the power of God. That's what we believe. We have experienced the power of God through the gospel in our lives. I'm not the same man I was years ago. And sometimes that old man rears his ugly head and boy, it really bothers me. And he has been lately because I've been paying too much attention to the election, too much attention to politics, not guarding my eyes, not guarding my ears. But we all agree, if we're in Christ, if we have the gospel, we all agree it's the power to save. And you're not the same person. If you're in Christ, you're not the same person you were a few years ago. God is constantly working through that gospel in our hearts to transform and make us more and more like Jesus. That's the purpose of our suffering, is sanctification and make us like Jesus. You know, Christians are the only ones that can make this claim. The whole world, the, the, the outside world, the world that is outside of Christ, it hates suffering. It does everything that it can to avoid it. It takes medicine. It does everything. It can. I'm not saying we don't take medicine because I'm a Tylenol guy, but you know what I'm saying? I am like headaches. But the world despises suffering and hates suffering and sees absolutely no purpose or value in suffering. And this is what sets us Christians apart from the rest of the world. We see incredible value in suffering because through the suffering, God makes us more and more like Christ. And that's also, also another message in the book of Job. Look at how God is working through His suffering to bring Him into alignment with Scripture. Scripture isn't just about rewards and retribution. There is grace. There is undeserved suffering. There is mercy. There are these things. So we value. I don't pray for suffering. And when it comes, I don't value it at first. But I learn very quickly and remember what God says about suffering and how He uses it for our good. And at that point, my thinking starts to shift. And then I begin to value it while simultaneously praying for it to leave. <laughs> That's what we do. We're so weak. We're so weak. The gospel is not foolishness to us. It is the power of God. And we rejoice. So... The holidays are upon us, aren't they? We've got Thanksgiving in a few days here. We've, and you know Christmas comes right after that real quick. Governor Newsom is telling us to hide in our homes until COVID passes. Just so you know, COVID is never going to pass. It's not going anywhere. It's going to be with us. As long as we have the flu, we're going to have the COVID flu. So, so, so he's telling us to hide in our homes and be in by 9.59 every night and don't gather and don't do these things. We're supposed to just lock ourselves away in our homes until this thing passes or until they get a vaccine, which you couldn't give me a million dollars to take that thing. Lord knows what's in that. Probably turn into the Borg. It is resistant to, you know, it is, it is futile to resist. You know what I mean? I don't even want to know what's in that thing. I heard it has metal in it. That scares me. But he's telling us, look, you need to stay in your homes. Don't gather at churches. Don't gather a bunch of people on Thanksgiving while he's eating $300 plates of pasta. He's saying this with no mask. If 
But he's telling us, stay in your homes, right? The emperor has spoken. But King Jesus is telling us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, right? Mark 16, 15. The question is, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to this, this governor who is essentially trying to control our lives and tell us we can't do anything? Or are we going to listen to Jesus, who's the king of kings above every nation, right? Who has little, little newsome in the palm of his hand. We're going to listen to the king of kings and do what we're supposed to do. I'm not saying shuck the guidelines and don't be safe. Do whatever you need to do. But are we just going to sit home and wait for this thing to pass when we've been given a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? The question is, who are we going to obey? I'm a fan of obeying the government. And Romans 13 talks about it, but not when it tells us we can't do what God calls us to do. God tells us to gather, you're here, praise God. God tells us to be on mission, I hope you go on mission. I hope you have so many people in your house that somehow you get a knock on the door, hey, you can't have this many people. And I hope that while you have those people at your house on Thanksgiving, that you're sharing the power of God, the gospel with them, because that's what we're to do. That's what we're to do. We should obey King Jesus and go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It is the power of God. It is the only word that can truly help our nation. It is. People are looking for a Savior today. It's either Savior Trump or Biden. Those are pathetic saviors. They can't save anything, including themselves. We have one, and it's Jesus. Let's talk about Him. Let's not talk about the election results. Let's talk about Jesus. I'd be the first one in line. Let's do that, okay? That's what the holidays are for, for us to be on mission. Let's go out and share the power of God. Let's pray now. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the parallels that are in it and how You've shown us through the undeserved suffering of Job. You've reminded us of the undeserved suffering of Jesus. And it's through His undeserved suffering that we receive undeserved forgiveness. And we thank You for Your sovereign grace. It's through the example of, of Job, or at least the attack on Job's words by Eliphaz, that we're reminded of all the various attacks that are made against the gospel, that it's empty and hurtful and all these things. But, but we, the people of God, don't believe that about the gospel. We believe that it is the power of God. We believe that it is the message of salvation. We believe that as a nation, it is our only hope. And so, Lord, embolden us to, to continue to speak the gospel or maybe to speak it for the first time in our workplaces as we continue to work. And if we're essential, I guess, we still get to go to work. Help us to, to proclaim it in our homes and everywhere that, that you call us to be. It's not an easy thing to do. It requires boldness. So we, we pray that you back that up with some boldness in us. We need to be bold as we do this. And uh, Father, thank you for this gathering once more. Thank you for your word. May we continue to worship you now as we sing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.